This morning we are continuing our look at the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus Christ, that early portion of His Sermon on the Mount, which is found in in Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, The last time I had the opportunity to preach in the morning, we began with the first Beatitude, blessed are the the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to look at that second Beatitude this morning, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So please turn there in your Bibles to Matthew 5. I will read, just, just for our information and a reminder, uh, the first 12 verses, the, the, the entire Beatitudes this morning, and then we're going to look at an Old Testament passage from Isaiah that connects with that second Beatitude. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word. Uh, we can trust it. It is here for our instruction. So let's listen carefully as it's read. Beginning at verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then if you would flip back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 53, we have here one of the servant songs in Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies about a coming servant of the Lord who would accomplish many wonderful things for His covenant people, and that, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ who is prophesied there. In Isaiah 53, we have the uh, suffering servant song, and it's all about the coming Messiah, Jesus, who would come to to bear our sorrows uh, and our sins, the, the great mourner of His people. So, please follow along as I read uh, this chapter, chapter 53 of Isaiah. Who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief." And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And we'll end there in our reading of Isaiah 53. Brothers and sisters, it won't come as a surprise to you when I say that our society, really as a whole, is preoccupied uh, with the pursuit of personal happiness and comfort. Uh, The driving passion for good feelings, comfortable thoughts, an easier life uh, is marketed to us all over the place, is it not? Uh, You look at the TV commercials, the billboard ads as you're whizzing by on the freeway, even the the exterior of food containers. Uh, They're they're all advertising game-changing items that are going to make our lives easier and happier and more secure. And so the, the, the driving question of our age has become this, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What choice can I make? What thing can I buy? that's going to make me happy and comfortable, carefree, free from all the trials and struggles and tribulations that might trouble other people but should not trouble me. Well, obviously, as Christians, we, we, we look at the society around us. We see this prevailing spirit in our society, and we realize this is not the message of Scripture. This is not the disposition, the attitude of the Christian, is it? For we are called to a very different ethic as Christians, for we are called to be disciples of the kingdom of heaven. And as we saw in the the first sermon on the Beatitudes, um, that's what the Beatitudes are all about. Um, Jesus, our Lord, teaches us that, that true blessedness is only experienced through true kingdom discipleship. And so Jesus' purpose in the Beatitudes is to pronounce a blessing upon those of His servants who display the attributes, the attitudes of the kingdom of God. And so we see several things about these Beatitudes. One, they are a description of who we are. They they reveal something about our identity as believers who are reigned and ruled by the Spirit of Christ. But they are also who we are to be. One commentator says that one one way to to remember what the Beatitudes are about is to think of them as the attitudes we are to be. Uh, Certainly, they describe who we are in Jesus, our new nature, but they are also the things we are to pursue actively, daily in our Christian lives. These are attributes that should define us as servants of Christ, and if they do, we will have a very different set of attitudes and allegiances than the world around us. Well, we notice that in our passage this morning, our Lord Jesus does not say, blessed are the happy and the comfortable. Blessed are those who have risen above the trials and the troubles of this life. You are truly blessed. No, He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And again, our our world, the spirit of our age, responds and says, how utterly ridiculous What a terrible ethic to live by. The goal of the human life should be to avoid mourning, 
to avoid suffering, discomfort at all costs. But the message of the kingdom of heaven is very different. They're worlds apart, you see. The ethic of God's kingdom, the teaching of God's Word is this. Only true Christian mourning results in true Christian comfort. Only true Christian mourning results in true Christian comfort. We're going to explore that theme this morning looking at various passages in Scripture, but first of all, we want to understand the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here. It might be difficult to answer that question simply by looking at Matthew's account here. Matthew simply says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But if we look at Luke's account of the Beatitudes in chapter 6, we gain a bit of clarity. Um, In Luke chapter 6, verse 21, the second half of that verse, Luke records Jesus saying, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Blessed are those of you who weep now, for you shall laugh. What are we to make of Jesus' teaching here about weeping and mourning? Is He teaching us that our lives should be characterized by depression? Should we be those who are walking around constantly mourning, who display no joy in our lives? Is that what Jesus is teaching? I came across a report recently that, that uh, said that um, the, the U.S. states that have the most religious residents are also the biggest poppers of antidepressant pills. So the most religious states apparently are the most depressed and sad and troubled. I can't verify that report. But is that really what Jesus is teaching here? Is it somehow more pious, more blessed and holy to be depressed and downcast all the time? Well, no, that's not the essence of Jesus' teaching here in this second beatitude. Jesus is not simply pronouncing blessing upon those who walk around with a melancholy mood. That's not His message. We must remember, brothers and sisters, that the characteristics that are described here in the Beatitudes are primarily spiritual characteristics. They're spiritual characteristics. They are are characteristics. They are attitudes worked in us by the Spirit of God. We saw that in the first Beatitude, for example. Our Lord Jesus teaches that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And we saw that poverty of spirit does not have to do with a lack of resources, lack of of personal wealth or material possessions. That's not the blessing that Jesus is pronouncing. By poverty of spirit, Jesus teaches about those who recognize their complete and utter need for God, not just for life, but certainly for salvation. Well, in the same way here, as Jesus pronounces blessing upon those who mourn, he's not talking about ordinary mourning, the ordinary sadness that we go through. He's talking about spiritual mourning in particular. But what is that? What's the essence? What's the nature of spiritual mourning? Well, first and foremost, spiritual mourning involves a sincere sorrow because of our own sin. Spiritual mourning involves a sincere sorrow over our own personal sin. 
Again, thinking of the first beatitude, spiritual mourning has to do with the poverty of our souls, which causes us to see our, our lack of internal resources as we stand before the utter holiness and the perfection of God. We think of Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 6, verse 5. What does he encounter? He encounters the holy God in the greatness of His presence. And because Isaiah knew the poverty of soul in comparison to the, the fullness and the perfection of God, what did he do? He was immediately drawn to mourn. He mourned in sorrow over his own sins. He mourned the fact that his lips were unclean. From his mouth flowed the deep recesses of his sin, the sin of his soul. He lamented the fact that he belonged to a people of unclean lips who deserved the judgment of God. And so he mourned. We mourn as well as those who, who recognize the sin within us that is so apparent to us as we, we place ourselves before the perfect and holy law of God. That spiritual mourning over sin is also uh, shows up in the confession of David in Psalm 32. Here, David has just been confronted over his sin by the prophet Nathan, his sin with Bathsheba, taking another man's wife, putting him to death in order to cover it up. And he's cut to the heart, David is. He, he desires to experience the forgiveness of God once again. He wants to know the embrace of God as his Father. And he says in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, when I failed to confess my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. But he says, when I acknowledged my sin, when I confessed it, when I mourned on account of my sin and iniquity, then I knew once again your forgiveness and your peace and your comfort. That's the blessed man that David knew so well, one who was genuinely sorrowful for their own sin before the perfection and the holiness of God. But you notice something else here about Isaiah and David and others who expressed spiritual mourning over the course of their lives. When we think of Isaiah, we recognize that he was a, he was a righteous prophet. He was a righteous man amidst all the, the wicked prophets of Israel. He was one of the good ones. Or King David. Certainly, he had his flaws. He was fallen. He was sinful but he was one of Israel's good kings. He was a man after God's own heart. And yet, these two individuals recognized something very important about spiritual mourning. They recognized that mourning over sin is something that ought to characterize our entire lives. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we don't stop mourning over our sin once we become children of God, once we've been converted. We continue every single day of our lives to mourn the fact that we are still sinners, that our lives don't match up to the perfect standard of God's law. And so spiritual mourning must be part of the Christian's daily walk. In fact, it's something that should increase as we grow in sanctification, as we are molded after the image of Jesus Christ. I've often heard elderly Christians, those who have walked longer, on the Christian road, that as they get older, they become more and more aware 
of their sin. Not only that, but their sin becomes more distasteful to them. Their sin becomes more disgusting to them. And isn't that the way it should be? Isn't that the way it should be? As we grow in our Christian maturity, we become more and more aware of just how offensive our sin is to God, and we we lament it, we mourn over it. We could go so far as to say that this kind of mourning is necessary. It's an important sign of God's Spirit at work within us. And so I ask you this morning, do you mourn over your sin? Or have you not thought about it lately? Does your sin cause you to grieve before the face of God that you've offended Him? Very soon we're going to look at the promises attached to this beatitude that those who mourn will be comforted. But but first we have to understand the main thrust of this beatitude that spiritual mourning over sin comes first and then the comfort. We can't have one without the other. If we have a defective doctrine of sin, if we have a shallow understanding of the depth and the offense of our iniquity before God, we will never desire and we will never receive the comfort that's attached to this beatitude. So we must understand the need for mourning over our own sin. But what's the extent of that mourning? Certainly, Christian mourning gets at the heart of personal repentance, doesn't it? But just how far does this mourning go for the Christian? Does it simply stop at sorrow over our own personal sin, or does it go further? Well, the Bible teaches that it goes even further. Our mourning as Christians goes beyond the sorrow that we experience over our own sin, and it extends to our sorrow over the sin that pervades this entire world, this entire creation in which we live. Christian mourning includes a deep sorrow over the fact that sin has is disoriented. It has dirtied God's original creation. It's turned people's hearts against the living God all around us. And we see that, don't we? We turn on the evening news and it runs like clips from a violent R-rated movie half the time. The newspapers and magazines are are constantly recounting uprisings and political upheavals all over the globe. In many parts of the world, jobs are scarce, crime abounds. We get used to hearing about government shutdowns and political revolutions and, and dishonest rulers. We don't even expect our rulers to be honest anymore. The threat of disease, pandemics, terminal illness. These are all very personal uh, threats that touch every one of our lives. Our loved ones turn their backs on God, and we fear for them as they live in outright rebellion, as they seem to totter on the brink of destruction. These realities cause us to mourn and to sorrow over sin. We see that there is something desperately wrong in this world that God has made. Things are not as God originally created them. And so as Christian mourners, we mourn the fact that sin has pervaded not just our lives, but the lives of many others, the the, the full 
creation of God. We, we long to see people's hearts turned away from sin, back to the Lord, and we confess like the psalmist, streams of tears flow from my eyes because your law is not obeyed. We weep. We grieve as we see God's Word and His name dragged through the mud. We long to see lawbreakers turned into law keepers, and we mourn when that transformation just doesn't seem to come fast enough. That's the extent of our Christian mourning. But there's something very important we must also remember. Our mourning as Christians goes to this extent because we share in Jesus' lament over the sins of the world. We share in Jesus' lament over the sins of the world. You know, we really can't look at the Beatitudes or any portion of Scripture for that matter without first looking at our Lord Jesus Christ because He is the perfect model. He is the perfect blessed man described here in the Beatitudes. Really, the characteristics described here in the Beatitudes could only perfectly be said of Him. We see this in a whole variety of ways during His earthly ministry. When Christ came to earth and lived a perfect life here, He exhibited, He modeled perfectly poverty of spirit, for example. You notice on earth He completely depended upon His heavenly Father for everything. Well, in the same way, He was also among the mourners during His entire ministry on earth. Jesus experienced in His flesh the fullness of pain of living in a world in which things are not as they are supposed to be. He suffered rejection in His own hometown where people who should have rejoiced in His coming turned against Him in hard unbelief. Jesus mourned over His countrymen. He longed to gather the people of Jerusalem to Himself, but they would not come, and He grieved over Jerusalem. He mourned over the tragedies that you and I experience in life. Though He was sinless Himself, He lamented the effects of sin in others. At the tomb of His dear friend Lazarus, He wept. He wept bitterly. He mourned more than any other human being who has ever lived. Why was He mourning? Not simply because there was bad behavior in the world, because He saw the unbelieving heart that kept His people from coming to Him in faith. And as His disciples, as those who share in Jesus' ministry, as those who love Him, and want to see His good news spread to the corners of the earth, we share in Jesus' lament. And we long to see all things made right again. We long for mourning to cease. Jesus knew, truly, more than anyone, what it was to be among the mourners. But here's the good news this morning, brothers and sisters. Our Lord Jesus no longer mourns. He no longer mourns. Do you know where He is, our Savior? He's enthroned in heaven. He's at the right hand of God, and He's laughing. He's laughing. Psalm 2 tells us that the plots, the plans of the wicked 
and their ruler, the devil. Those plots and those plans are utterly futile. They are destined to fail, and the Son of Man sits enthroned on high, and He laughs. He scoffs because He knows that they can do nothing to interrupt the redeeming plans of God for His people. Man can do nothing to get in the way of Christ redeeming a people for Himself. They can do nothing. The devil can do nothing to get in the way of Christ claiming and bringing to Himself His elect, those for whom He died. A people destined not for everlasting sorrow, but everlasting joy in God. That same Isaiah, the same Isaiah who foresaw the coming of the man of sorrows, the one who would be stricken and afflicted on our account to take upon himself the iniquity of us all, that same Isaiah who saw the man of sorrows in Psalm 53, which I read earlier, also saw the aftermath, the consequences, the benefits of what that suffering servant would come to do, and he paints a beautiful picture of that in Isaiah 35. He paints a beautiful picture where everything that is wrong in this world on account of the suffering servant will be made right again. Let me read a few verses here from the last part of that chapter. Isaiah 35, beginning at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads." They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee. Sorrow and sighing shall flee. No ferocious beast to threaten God's people. No more blindness. No more deafness. All that has gone wrong will be reversed. And a great procession of the redeemed will march up to God's dwelling place in Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, and our Lord Jesus in His train will lead all of us, the redeemed, the rescued, as we rejoice in, the un in unending joy in our Savior and King. Yes, Jesus was the mourner of mourners. He was the perfect mourner, and He had to be. He first had to drink the cup of our suffering, Psalm 50, or Isaiah 53 before He could return to the Father with our salvation securely in His hand so that He could then lead us in everlasting joy and comfort and peace behind Him to the Holy of Holies, to God Himself. And that's what He did for you. 
That's what He did for you. That's the wonderful good news. What great hope there is for us who mourn right now because there is an end to our mourning in Jesus Christ. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, blessed are you who mourn, who mourn over your own sin. Blessed are you who are sober-minded about your own sinful condition because in Jesus, the penalty of your sin has been paid for and its power over you has been canceled. You can make right now today real beginnings in obedience to His law. Blessed are you who mourn over the sins of the lost, over the sin that troubles this, this entire broken world because you will be comforted. God will make you happy because He has granted you a place in God's kingdom with God's people where sin will no longer trouble you. Blessed are you who mourn over a lost humanity, for you will be comforted. Your tears will be removed forever in the blessed community of all the saints that God will draw to Himself. You will see, you will enjoy forever the multitude of God's people brought into His eternal kingdom, and He will never take you from that place. That's gospel comfort, secure and unchanging for those of us who now, presently, mourn. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are concerned, we are frightened, we are troubled by what we see not only within us but around us. We see the sin that still clings to us. We all fall in many ways. And we see, perhaps even in greater measure, the hardness of heart that, that characterizes those around us and those within our own families. We see tragedy and trouble and disease and hardship all around us, and we know that this is the not, not the way that we in our world were created to be. And yet, even as we experience sorrow and grief over the sin that we commit against You presently, as we sorrow and we grieve over the sin that is rampant in our society, yet we have a wonderful promise to claim, and we are so grateful for it. We thank You for that true and lasting promise that can never be taken away, the promise that You are coming again to make all things right. Not only have You rescued us now, right now, from the power of sin so that we can begin to grow in holiness and obedience according to Your Word, but You are coming again to ultimately and finally cleanse sin from this creation, from us and from our body. There is a day coming when our mourning will be no more, when sorrow will cease, when no tear will be upon our face. Because the suffering servant has become the laughing ruler, we know that these things will take place. We will enjoy victory at Your right hand, and You will wipe all suffering away and usher us into Your glorious presence forever and ever. And so, Lord, just as we are those who mourn right now, because You have made us mourners in Jesus Christ, giving us a godly sorrow over sin, may we also mourn 
in the hope of the final victory over all sin and death. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.